In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. So there's not much to talk about today. Yeah, not much happened. I guess, you know, Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Absolutely. Yeah, I gotta say, my, my New Year went off with a bang. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon. You're you're a terrible human being. Oh, why don't you airstrike me then? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, too soon. Too I know, soon. seriously. But in all seriousness, we've got a lot to talk about today. I laugh so that I won't cry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're going to cover several subjects today. Our main focus is going to be, of course, the assassination of Soleimani. Um, we're also going to discuss uh, the smoking age in a slightly less uh, significant uh, topic. And then we're going to discuss some primary news. But first off, Michael... What's our theme for today? So today our theme is hard power versus soft power. And so uh, to define those a little bit, you know, hard power is the ability for, you know, the United States or a nation or, or any actor in a relationship to take um, concerted forcible action against another party. So, you know, the United States has military all over the world. Um, we have like our Navy is everywhere. We have air force bases and army bases all over the world. Those represent our hard power. Those are our ability to actually go out and take coercive action against others. The police also have hard power. Yeah. The police in the United States are able to arrest people. They're able to, you know, put on riot gear and storm into places. And that's all of that is hard power. And in the case of, you know, everyday life, it's pretty rare to experience hard power. It's, it's, you know, you don't experience hard power at your employer. They don't, you know, like, unless you're being forcibly removed from the building because you're a security threat or something, it's like very rare to experience it. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's because hard power is supposed to be a last resort because it is purely a zero-sum game. One person is able to potentially win and another definitely loses. And so in terms of like a negotiation, that would be like a net negative outcome for like, like overall. And so in the international community, as well as at home, we prefer soft power. You prefer influence. You prefer relationships. You prefer building a rapport or connection with an opposing party so that you can have a, an outcome that is potentially mutually beneficial. That's why we have diplomats all over the world. That's why we have embassies everywhere. That's why we try to maintain relationships with allies and why we try to maintain relationships with people that we're not as friendly with. It's so that we can exercise influence rather than having to exercise force. So you mean to tell me that military strikes should not always be our first resort? <laughs> so, so that's the thing, like... It seems like we have a huge arsenal in our in the hard power section of the United States. We've got all kinds of different machines. Ultimately, though, those machines all serve relatively the same purpose, which is forcible coercion of another country. Soft power is 
much more diverse a set of tools. You're able to leverage more than just a carrot and a stick. You can leverage your history with a nation. You can leverage your influence on both their people and their leadership. Like it is a longer game and it's a, maybe a little bit less flashy of a game if you're really into the, the bully um, perspective, but like it can be a much more diverse set of tools and can lead to a much more beneficial outcome. If you, if you like bomb a city, the city is bombed. Yeah. Okay. You may be able to change the regime that controls that city, but ultimately you've destroyed likely the object of your goal. If you are able to exercise soft power and influence a regime out or influence a regime to change its policies, it's a harder thing to do potentially, but ultimately a city stands at the end of the day. Let's bring that straight into our main story for today. So unless you've been living under a rock. Oh, that's a terrible joke. Oh God, I just realized that. I actually, that was not on purpose. That was not on purpose. I promise that was not on purpose. On Thursday, Iranian General Soleimani was killed by a United States airstrike, which was ordered by President Donald Trump. So there are several reasons why Trump is saying that we did it. And they all connect to this timeline that I'm sure you've seen in the news. And we'll go through like, the uh, conventional timeline, and then we'll try to draw it back even further in history. Um, so it, it kind of all started, quote unquote, with um, a an Iraqi militia group, actually, which um, had been trading fire with U.S. forces uh, in Iraq and actually killed an American contractor. And in response, the U.S. bombed a bunch of sites affiliated with this Iraqi military group. And in response to that, the the militia group um, then stormed uh, our U.S. embassy in Baghdad and held it for parts of it for about 24 hours. You might be wondering, like, why the heck am I talking about an Iraqi militia group in response to, you know, the killing of Qasem Soleimani, an Iranian military official? And that's because of who Qasem Soleimani is. So. He is actually the like number two guy in the Irani government, basically. He's like, people have said he's like the head of the CIA, the head of our, the special forces, and the foreign minister all rode, rolled into one. He's super influential. And the reason he's super influ- influential is because um, since the late 1990s, he has been the commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Elite Quds Force which is a set of about twenty to 30,000 um, actors in Iran and the Middle East that um, coordinate the relationship with, of Iran with all of its proxy forces throughout the Middle East. So that includes um, Hezbollah and um, multiple other forces throughout the Middle East and North Africa. And so we're talking about a person who is a really bad guy. Yeah. That's one of the arguments that you see people make about what to justify this action. Yeah. And also, let's make something clear. There has definitely been this straw man of the left that Mm -hmm. a lot of people on the right have been throwing out, uh, where they're basically saying anybody that's criticizing Donald Trump for killing this guy is disregarding the fact that this guy has done some really heinous things, that he has killed Americans and he has participated in terrorism. No one denies the fact that he's a bad guy. Yeah. And and notice, like, 
this argument is so ingenuous because notice that when Trump ordered the killing of al-Baghdadi, like a, a seriously influential terrorist leader in the Middle East, we're, everybody was congratulatory. Yeah. We were yeah, all no, on you're board. Good. You're good. Even even those of us on the left were like, yeah, that, that needed to happen. Good move. Good job. Congratulations. Good job, man. Like we can come together when it makes sense to yeah. celebrate like the toppling of a really important terrorist figure. And And let's not mince words. Soleimani is a recognized terrorist actor by the United States. That's absolutely true. But at the same time, he's also a state actor. He's yes. not working independently from a state. When it came to um, uh, al-Baghdadi, uh, he was working independently. Yes. And that's that's hugely important because we're talking about the difference between toppling like the leader of a group, a relatively well-organized, but a group of like fighters as opposed to assassinating the second most important commander of a sovereign nation. Think of it like this. It would be like the difference between uh, someone deciding to assassinate the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan and someone deciding to assassinate the Secretary of State. That's a great analogy. Yeah. It, it's like, yeah, exactly. So on top of the fact that he is... He was a really important guy in Iran. On top of the fact that he is, he he lives in this gray zone between being a terrorist and being a state actor. Like it is a it is a complex situation. There's no doubt about that. And we're going to try to unpack as much of that as we can, because we want to make sure we treat this in good faith, even though it's been kind of a debacle. Yeah. But he's also really popular in Iran. Yeah. Um, so there were like in, in the weeks leading up to this, there were a bunch of anti-government protests in Iran. Um, and now those protests have all been turned and focused at the United States. Yeah. It's, it's united all of the many different factions in Iran against a common enemy, which is now us. Yeah. The issue is we didn't remove a threat. We created a martyr. Exactly. That has become even more clear since this originally happened, because immediately uh, Soleimani was succeeded by Brigadier General Esmail Ghani, who has committed to, quote, uprooting the U.S. from the region and um, continuing the work of the martyr Soleimani as, quote, robustly as he did. That's the problem with trying to assassinate state actors. There's always some kind of official line of succession. Yeah. When it comes to more independent actors, the line of succession can sometimes be a little bit muddled or whatever. Sure. But there's a clear line of succession when you assassinate a state actor. When you have a cult, a personality cult or a religious cult, yeah. you take away the personality, you take away the head and the body dies. That is not the case in in a state actor like this. There, yeah. Like the Irani government is quite organized. All of this is extremely important to recognize and to put into context for the last week. But it's also important to go back further than that, because you could argue that there have been acts of aggression against the United States by Iran. Yeah, um, I mean, for, for I don't know who would argue against that. But it's important to put that into context before you say, oh, well, then I guess they had it coming. You need to look at the fact that we had a deal with them 
that Trump just decided to break randomly. So let's talk a little bit about the Iran deal, because there's a lot of misinformation going around about it. Liberals are saying it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, Trump is saying that we basically paid them to not get rid of their uh, nuclear weapons. So who's right? Well, you will be surprised to know that Trump is not right. So it is a little bit more complicated than just like, it's the best deal ever, it's the greatest thing that, since sliced bread. There are limitations to it and there are legitimate criticisms of it. But the criticism that Trump kept making on the campaign trail was, oh, we're basically sending them billions and billions of dollars, which that's not actually totally part of the true. deal. That's not how sanctions work. So there were several parts of the deal. Some of the key parts of it were targeted at reducing Iran's ability to create a nuclear weapon. So, some things that that involved. First off, they're only allowed to produce low-enriched uranium, which has a concentration of 3 to 4%. Now, that can be used for things like fuel. Yeah, for nuclear power. But it can't be used for weapon. In order to have weapons-grade uranium, it needs to have 90% enrichment. So that's one thing. Uh, number two. Iran had 20,000 centrifuges. Under this deal, they could only have 5,060 of the oldest and least effective centrifuges. Next, their stockpile. It was reduced by 98% to only 660 pounds. Now, one of the biggest criticisms of this is the fact that there is a sunrise provision. They are allowed to produce more centrifuges after 10 years. They are allowed to increase their stockpile um, in 2031. But this removed that threat for the time being. Mm -hmm. So if the criticism is, well, it's going to expire in 10 years, but then your solution is, therefore, I'm going to make sure that it expires right now. You're an idiot. That's stupid. Why would you do that? And a couple more key provisions are that it um, required that Iran open itself up to regular inspections um, by the International Atomic Energy Agency. To make sure that they were abiding by the nuclear deal. Exactly. So not only was there a provision for them to basically not be able to accumulate enough uranium nor enrich it to the point where they would be able to create a potent nuclear bomb, but also monitoring in place so that we could make sure that they were abiding by this deal. So what did Iran get in return? Well, according to Trump, we just sent them billions and billions of dollars of taxpayer money. According to reality, uh, we lifted all the sanctions that we had on Iran. So that means uh, there were no more trade embargoes. Um, they were allowed to actually receive resources and help from other countries, which includes things like food and medicine. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's also criticisms of that, that it would make it easier for them to acquire not necessarily nuclear weapons, but uh, ground weapons yeah. that um, Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, uh, criticized the United States for because he thought that that would make it easier for them to potentially attack uh, Israel. And perhaps that is a legitimate concern. Yeah. And to be fair, like Iran funds and organizes terrorist organization in the Middle East, yeah. not ISIS, but other um, militias and paramilitary groups. Yeah. So we're definitely not going to pretend that 
this deal was perfect. And we're definitely not going to pretend that um, we got absolutely everything we wanted. But the fact of the matter is, um, we did prevent them from getting any type of nuclear weapon, which is the main thing that we were afraid of. Um, and we didn't send them money. We just money. We just lifted sanctions. And the most important thing of all of this is that even if you don't think that Obama should have made this deal in the first place, he did. The United States made an international deal. Mm -hmm. If you make an international deal and then later you just rip it up, that creates a lot of bad will between other nations. Bad will, mistrust, like combine that with the way that Trump's administration treats our allies and who's going to want to be yeah. a partner with the United States abroad. So the next time any president tries to make any type of deal with someone from the Middle East, they're going to look at this and be like, wait a minute, you're the assholes that broke the Iran deal. Why would I trust you? Yeah. So it sabotaged our own ability to use soft power mm -hmm. on the world stage. And the reasons that Trump gave for why he got rid of it were just not true. And it's very clear that the reason why he got rid of it was because it had Obama's name on it. Yeah. And note that from both sides of the aisle, people have criticized getting rid of the Iran deal. Like legislators on both sides have said, you know, this was a like important deal that we need to abide by. It's an international treaty among many, many nations, not just between Iran and the United States. Then we backed out and they started rebuilding their stockpile because of course they did. Yeah. We had broken the deal. So why, what gives them any incentive to do it? And the thing is prior to this, they were fulfilling their end of the deal. All of the inspections were showing that they were fulfilling their end of the deal. There was no reason to get rid of this deal. Now, if you wanted to try to make a better deal, like, fine. If that's what Trump had tried to do, then, and he had managed to get a better deal that maybe uh, made the sunset provision, got rid of the sunset provision or expanded it, then I'd be standing, I'd be sitting right here saying, great job, Trump, you did it. But he didn't do that. He just scrapped it. And he put us in danger. He sabotaged our relationship. And he and the sanctions that were re-put on Iran involved taking away food and medicine from the people, causing massive death from our own actions. Now, that's part oftentimes that's part of the point of sanctions. So you start to make the people pissed off at their government mm -hmm. because we put sanctions on the government. And so ideally, they should then want to overthrow the government. But that doesn't change the fact that we were using innocent civilians as pawns in this completely erroneous strategy. And so since the uh, assassination of Soleimani, the Iranian government has um, declared that they will no longer abide by any operational limitations of the Iran nuclear deal. So they were already increasing their stockpile of uranium, and they broke the stockpile provision uh, back in July. Um, but they are now no longer abiding by the limit to limit the number of centrifuges that they have in production. Um, however, it doesn't mean that they're totally scrapping the deal, because the deal is actually among a, a number of countries, including China and Russia and countries in the European Union. Um, so they will still allow international inspections, um, and they'll, they'll still attend periodic meetings. So all is not necessarily lost for the deal. 
um, for, but certainly the United States' ability to exercise influence as opposed to um, a cudgel is severely limited, if not totally gone. We are significantly less safe than we previously were. He claimed he did this to protect soldiers. He only put them in more danger. See, one of the arguments that we keep hearing from the White House that keep getting repeated by right-wing media is, oh, well, Soleimani was planning on attacking Americans. Like Pompeo went around to various different news outlets and they asked him specifically, okay, so why'd you do this? He's like, oh, well, he was going to, he was going to attack us. It's like, okay, can you show us some evidence? Like, what was he going to do? What was he planning on doing? Oh, I can't, I can't share that with you. I can't share that with you. So you just expect us to believe that he was planning on attacking us because you said so. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've seen this movie before. <laughs> I believe it was called the Iraq war. You mm-hmm. you remember that? You uh, remember that, Michael? Same, this is, yeah. Like, you know, the Iraq war two colon Iran. Yeah, remember that time that we invaded a country that didn't attack us under false pretenses that they had weapons of mass destruction, Mm. even though there was no evidence that they had any weapons of mass destruction? And then when we we toppled the regime, we were like, oh, big surprise, there were no weapons of mass destruction all along. Who knew? I mean, I was kind of young at the time, but I've read about it. (laughs) See, I actually remember being in first grade and having arguments with my teacher about that. Yeah, I was I'm, I'm much not, less woke. I'm not even time. kidding. I actually had arguments with my teacher in first grade specifically about that. And you wonder why you got bullied. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> by, the, by the teachers. I would say. <laughs> oh, no, my teachers usually liked me. I was a huge yeah. teacher's pet, but I don't think they appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but it turns out I was right. Um, let's go ahead and create our own defeasibility test. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it does turn out that Soleimani was specifically planning on attacking America. And there's undeniable proof that is presented to us. Then I would be like, okay, well, if he was, if he was planning on attacking us and this was actually a preemptive strike, then fine. Mm -hmm. That it was probably justified. Um, Or at least it could potentially make sense as uh, some, an option to be on the menu. But that doesn't, but even that doesn't change the fact that tensions with Iran are exacerbated mm-hmm. by this entire, by this, uh, killing and, um, and we're not any safer. So, and so we'd still need to recognize that as well, but I would be willing to concede, okay, this was probably justified. Sure. And, and let's be clear again, like Soleimani was a bad dude. He was a terrorist. There's a reason why the international community has not totally condemned his killing because he was, um, a truly like evil actor in the middle East. Yeah. But you know who else is a truly evil actor? Who? Kim Jong-un. He's one of the most evil people on the face of this planet. Yeah. And yet, it would be idiotic for us to just go in and airstrike him mm-hmm. because if we did that, it would start a freaking war Yeah, with a country that has nuclear weapons. Yeah. We are interacting with evil state actors all the time and it is our policy not to assassinate them. No, no, like Obama and Bush had the opportunity to assassinate Soleimani. 
and it was always deemed uh, not worth the risk at the time. Yeah. Now, note that on the campaign trail, Trump promised that under his administration, Soleimani would be dead. So I can only imagine that weighed in on his decisions when he was presented with his option or his menu of options in response to the occupation of the U.S. embassy in Baghdad, um, where reportedly his staff was very surprised when he took when he decided to select one of the most extreme and out of left field options, which was to airstrike um, Soleimani. And also, let's note that, you know, this is a story that is developing. We are still learning a lot of things about this. And we're trying to focus on whether this makes sense as a strategic action. And, you know, the the kind of haphazardness, the disorganization that has been um, that has been like seen throughout this action makes me like me personally really worried. It makes me wonder whether it's a strategic action at all, because you see like you're seeing a press release from, you know, the DOD go out like well after sources in on the ground in the Middle East are confirming that Soleimani was killed by a U.S. airstrike. You're seeing like Trump tweet a picture of an American flag as like a, you know, wink or nod to the American people that like he did something cool. And, and all, and then he proceeds to send a bunch of troops um, to the Middle East. He sent over 3000 troops. They are notifying American civilians in um, the Middle East to evacuate because, and, and that the embassy is not necessarily safe because they are anticipating an Iranian reaction. Like, and all of this is happening like on their heels. Like they are set, they're totally behind the eight ball. If this was a component of a strategic move to take out a key foreign leader, these actions could have been planned for and taken ahead of time. Like they're, they're, this could have been a much more organized effort but it wasn't. It was like a spur of the moment decision. And even Lindsey Graham said himself, he said, quote, we need to get ready for, major, for a major pushback. Our people in Iraq and the Middle East are going to be targeted. I think we need to get ready for a big counterpunch. That's Lindsey Graham. No, like extreme Trump supporter. Yeah. And Iran will react. It's likely that Iraq is going to expel the United States from its borders, a country that we spent trillions and trillions of dollars to occupy and change to a democratic government. Yeah. And there's one more, there's one more point I want to make before we move on. Um, I want to read the words of a very wise take on this whole thing. All right. So I want to read these words. So our president will start a war with Iran because he has absolutely no ability to negotiate He's weak, he's ineffective, so the only way he figures that he's going to get reelected, as sure as you're sitting, sitting there, is to start a war with Iran. Now, you know who said that? I don't know. President Trump in 2011 about Barack Obama. Hmm. President Trump claimed in 2011 that Obama was going to start a war with Iran during an election year in order to get reelected. 
And now it seems like he's doing exactly that right now. There is so much self-projection that Trump has that it's insane. For every major criticism that he's had that he had uh, of Obama during Obama's administration, he has done tenfold. He criticized Obama for golfing. No one, no president has golfed more than Donald Trump. He, he, he said that Obama was going to get us into a war with Iran to win re-election. Well, it's looking like that's what this idiot's doing. Uh, he claims that the world was laughing at us under Obama. He stood at the U, in front of the United Nations and said, I have accomplished more than any other president in history. And the world literally laughed at him. Everyone laughed at him. It is so much projection. And I wonder if back then he was sitting there thinking, now what would, I, what would I do if I was president? Because apparently all of the things that you're accusing Obama of doing, even the things that Obama has not actually done, you are now doing. And yet Trump supporters are defending this. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, it's so stupid. It's so partisan for liberals to be complaining about the fact that Trump just attacked, uh, j- just killed a foreign leader because he was a bad guy. Give me a break. And so on that happy note, we are going to transition to one of uh, the segments of the week that we actually really enjoy, which is tips for good. Yep. So what is our tips for good segment this week, Michael? So every week we want to come to you with a segment to, that you can keep in mind or action that you can take to make the world a little bit of a better place. And this week it is that you should go out there and take a few minutes out of your day to donate blood. Um, so donating blood is a really important activity because, you know, your father's an anatomy and physiology teacher, yeah. Nathan. You know, and so does he, that, that human beings need blood. They do. Yeah. And, and I only know that because my dad is an A&P professor. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure that a lot of our listeners might not know that, though. Yes. So humans need blood. We'll start there. In fact, about 4.5 million Americans... blood. <laughs> <laughs> about 4.5 million Americans will actually need a blood transfusion each year. Um, and so it's funny that, you know, about 37% of the United States population is actually eligible to donate blood because of limitations on... Um, your your nutrition levels, your hemoglobin, whether you're sick, all that stuff. There are uh, it narrows it down to about a pool of thirty seven percent of people, but only about ten percent of people do so annually. And you can actually donate blood every fifty six days. So keeping that in mind, you know we should be seeing a lot more people doing it annually and multiple times. Um, so about one in seven people that enter a hospital will need blood. One pint of blood can actually save up to three lives. So I hate needles. You hate needles. Nathan, I think you probably hate needles. No, I actually kind of like needles. That's really strange. I know it is kind of strange, but I always, I don't know. Every time I would get uh, a shot, um I would always uh be really proud of the fact that when they would come up to me, they'd be like, "Okay, okay, don't worry about this. Don't worry about this." And then I would just flex my arm and then scare the hell out of them. <laughs> well, if you're if you're not a crazy person, you you may not like needles, but it can make a huge difference to people. And it often only takes a few minutes out of your day. I personally donate a pint of blood in about five and a half to six and a half minutes. Um, and with with uh, filling out the paperwork and everything and waiting in line, it might take up to about half an hour for me to donate blood. Um, so it can make a huge difference. And if you, if you, you know, 
are donating blood regularly, say every 56 days or so, which is about eligibility, um, you can actually even do more. So you can donate plasma and platelets in between. Um, you can donate platelets, I believe, every three weeks or so. And that's actually where they extract a special cell from your set of bloods that helps um, people, that's produced in your bone marrow and helps people heal. And one of the reasons that's so, so important is because platelets and the production of platelets, are, which are like really critical to your immune system and your health, uh, the production of platelets is harmed by leukemia which is one of the most common forms of childhood cancer. And so when you donate platelets, uh, you are very likely donating special cells that will save a child's life. So go out there, donate blood, donate platelets, um, get on the American Red Cross uh, like mailing list. They'll call you a bunch. It's super annoying, but it's a great reminder to donate blood. And they'll call you. You can make an appointment right there for your most convenient donation location. So that's our tips for good this week. Donate blood, save lives. Yep. All right. Our next segment, we are going to talk about smoking. Now, this, this story is a little bit less significant, or it might seem a little bit less significant than some of the other things we've covered on this podcast. It's definitely less significant than the fact that we might be about to go to war with Iran, but... I do think that there are aspects of this that are worth talking about, both on a philosophical level and on a uh, overall legislative, societal, what is the role of government type of level. So one of the things that I have often said on this podcast is ideologically, I consider myself a social democrat and a civil libertarian. And this is probably going to be the best insight you will have into what makes me a civil libertarian. Aside from when we talk about guns in a few weeks. <laughs> uh, that'll be fun. Um, so why are we talking about smoking? So a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration officially changed the federal minimum age to purchase tobacco uh, products, including e-cigarettes and vaping cartridges, from 18 years old to 21 years old. And this was a federal law that mm -hmm. was worked on by our own senator, Tim Kaine, and uh, the devil incarnate, Mitch McConnell. Um, and it was signed into law by the uh, other devil incarnate, Donald Trump. Um, now, their level, their statuses as devil incarnate have don't really have as much to do with this specific law. Sure. But I just wanted to call them that. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, and, and so it was attached to like a one a one point four trillion dollar spending package. Which, uh, by the way, I also, I also hate. Like, I, I don't like the fact that spending packages have become like negotiating tools for certain, a bunch of other stuff. For a bunch of other stuff, like yeah. I, I think that's problematic. I don't like yeah. that. Um, so about one point four billion dollars of that was reserved for U.S. Mexico for U.S. Mexico border wall. In fact, yeah. Interestingly, though, this is a good thing. Uh, Twenty-five million dollars of which actually uh, go uh, towards uh, gun violence research, which is really cool. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, but anyway, back to tobacco. So I think that this is a good discussion to have specifically about civil liberties. So I would like to provide some caveats first. I hate smoking. Um, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. Uh, 
I have smoked some cigars, but I haven't smoked a cigar in years, uh, mostly because I don't want to subject my poor wife to smoke breath. Um, so I think that tobacco overall is a negative in society. Yeah. Um, I can't stand the smell of tobacco smoke. Mm -hmm. I hate it. Um, and I think that Michael, you, you have a similar view of tobacco. Yeah, definitely. Similar to Nathan, I have tried some various tobacco products and personally I hate them. Also like it's cigarette smoking is actually the leading cause of preventable disease and death in the United States, which accounts for about 480,000 deaths a year or about one in five deaths. So actually if you like, I don't know if you care about murder and if you care about war in, in the Middle East and like the impact it has on United, like people in the United States, like smoking's up there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, um, let's not forget about the fact that there have been some really insidious campaigns by tobacco companies mm -hmm. in the past, like in targeting kids, which they've, you know, the steps have been taken to make that illegal, such sure. as they're not allowed to advertise, uh, on the, on uh, TV, which I think is completely fair. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's also the fact that they took a lot of steps to try to cover up the fact that, uh, cigarettes cause cancer, which mm -hmm. is one of the most nefarious stories in um, the history of corporate America, which I would definitely encourage all of you to look up more about. Mm -hmm. So I don't want it to sound like I am, uh, what I'm about to say is in any way a defense of the tobacco companies, of the mm -hmm. tobacco industries, or even motivated by self-interest. I don't smoke. And even if I did smoke, I'm 24. This doesn't affect me whatsoever. Exactly. I think that this is, a dumb idea. I think this is a horrible idea. I think it's a stupid idea. Um, and I think that it is government overreach. Now, I believe that as a society, we need to decide when you're an adult and make that the age where you are an adult. Make that the age where we trust you to make decisions. Now, I would be open to having a conversation about whether or not we should aid, we should raise the age of what we consider adulthood. Mm -hmm. I'd be open to that conversation, you know. Um, but while we have the age of adulthood be 18, we need to treat 18-year-olds like adults. We need to trust them to make their own damn decisions. And let me let me also point this out. So a lot of people say, oh, well, 18-year-olds' brains aren't as developed as a 21-year-old's brain, so they can't make uh, the right—they're they, not as good at making decisions about their health. Well, you know what else is really bad for your health? Um, bullets. Getting shot. You know what 18-year-olds are allowed to do? Enlist in the military, go overseas, and get shot. Not just voluntarily, voluntarily enlist— Become drafted. Yeah. You can be drafted. Now, you, know what, you know what else is really risky for your health? Driving. Yeah. It accounts for tons of death a, a year. Like, it's one of the riskiest activities most Americans experience on their everyday in their everyday life. Yeah. And 18-year-olds may be worse drivers. Yeah. All the texting. And yet, we let 16-year-olds drive. We let 15-year-olds drive on a learner's permit. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not saying that that should change. I think that... There, to an extent, um, there are there is an argument to be made for aspects of incremental uh, responsibility 
um, based on certain ages. But if we're putting 18 as the age where you are an adult, treat them like adults. And I think that is... That's where it's parsed for me. So I, I, similar to Nathan, I think that incremental responsibility with age makes sense. You know, um, as your brain develops, as your judgment increases, as your sense of your place in the world um, becomes more attuned and you're able to better account for your activities and understand the implications that your activities have on others, it makes sense for um, your responsibilities and both your privileges to increase. So for example, like one of the reasons why the drinking age was raised from 18 to 21 was so that fewer young drivers would be drinking and driving. Um, that's an, an interesting argument. And like, I think that I think it's a stupid argument. Yeah. I, I, so but, I think that that's a stupid argument because so what you're saying is laws don't work. Laws saying that you can't drink and drive, that doesn't work. All right, so uh, what's your solution? Well, it's more laws, of course. But wait a minute, you said that laws don't work. Um, now, again, it comes down to you shouldn't make a harmless action illegal because it might lead to a harmful action. You should make the harmful action illegal. And, and and even and and to even take it a step further, you might argue, well, alcohol that that can be a harmful action, and smoking definitely is definitely is a harmful action. But if you're the only one that it is harming, then that should be your choice. Yeah, and I think this is where like the civil libertarian side kind of yeah, weighs in exactly because if you notice, like the way that we often talk about um, the role of citizens and people in society in society and the role of government in participating in their lives it is in the public sphere the sphere where you interact with other people yeah for like where that sphere ends where it is your actions that don't have wider implications that um don't directly lead to negative consequences for others i can't see that it makes sense for government invention like i can't see that the case for government government intervention makes sense yeah um now there are some there are some exceptions i would say to that if the government decided to pass a law about um smoking in a house where there's an infant mm -hmm. i think that that would be a reasonable discussion to have yeah. but not when it comes to limiting an action that only hurts yourself in my opinion the point of the government is not to protect you from yourself. Yeah. It's to protect you from other people and to provide basic services that give you an equal opportunity in society. It's not to limit your own personal freedoms. And the reason why this pisses me off the most is because this is being touted as this huge, wonderful, bipartisan victory. So we seem to have this huge... Uh, infatuation in this country with bipartisanship and how great it is when Congress is actually able to work together to get something done. And my response to this whole thing was Congress comes up to me. is like, Hey, we got something done. And I was like, great. Did you expand personal freedoms? No, we limited them, but we did it together. So it's good. That's not the type of bipartisanship that is a good thing, though. Yeah. And the thing is, there are so many other uh, there are so many other laws that have just been put on hold that do have bipartisan support. That if they were put in the Senate right now, 
if they were if there was a vote in the Senate right now that they would pass immediately. The Dream Act comes to mind. Mm -hmm. The fact that there are still hundreds of thousands of dreamers in this country that are constantly fearing deportation, especially considering the fact that we don't know what the decision is that the Supreme Court made about uh, Trump's decision to end DACA. Mm -hmm. The fact that there are all of these uh, these kids over the country that fear deportation, an issue in which prevention has bipartisan support, and yet the bipartisanship that they try to do is something as menial and as stupid as reducing people's personal freedoms on smoking, protecting them from themselves, that just pisses me off. If anybody tries to argue that the Republican Party is still the party of personal freedoms and individual liberties, they're blowing smoke, no pun intended. Because <laughs> it's just it's just not borne out in the facts. They 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 stand up for a certain set of liberties and also, throw all others by the wayside. And also, arguably, people often say that the Democrats are the socially libertarian party, mm -hmm. and yet they do stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And it's authoritarian in nature. I mean, bipartisanship in Washington should not be agreeing on something authoritarian. Um, so... You can make the argument that this will decrease smoking among uh, younger people, among 18-year-olds. Uh, I guess 18-year-olds year, 18 through 20-year-olds. Yeah. You can make that argument, but again, that is a personal choice that people make. And if they want to put their body at risk, that's their business. It's not mine to tell them what they can't do. I do a lot of stupid things that put my body at risk. I eat carbs. You're going to ban carbs. <laughs> I drive a car. You're going to, you're going to ban cars, you know? Yeah. And the thing is like, I want, I, I watch shows on Disney plus. I know that's <laughs> not good for me. <laughs> and you know, we, you know, you talk about the efficaciousness of, banning something as well like we are winning the fight against smoking in a, in a lot of ways since 2005 the uh, percent of united states adults that have smoked went from 20.9 percent in 2005 to 15.5 percent in 2016 now still millions of people smoke but like th taking actions that like limit the smoking companies that makes sense yeah taking actions 100%. that you know serve to share information about the harms of smoking totally makes sense like focusing on like show like trying to convince kids that it's not cool totally makes sense limiting smoking in public facilities and in restaurants makes total sense all of those things limit the harmful effects to other people i'll put a skull and crossbones on every single pack of cigarettes pass a law that Every single yeah. cigarette company has to do that. I'd be fine with that. Yeah, I was in an airport and in the duty-free section, there's this huge smoking section and on every single carton, every single one, there's a huge piece of paper that says smoking kills. Yeah. And like, okay, awesome. Good. Yeah, sweet. That's Put great. Put the restrictions on the companies themselves, not the consumers. My issue is you're shifting the blame from the companies to the consumers and you're limiting them... Well, yeah. basically letting the tobacco companies get away with 
all the crap that they do. Yeah, I mean, sponsor programs that help combat addiction. Like, yeah. that's a great place to put your time and effort and money because, you know, there are tons of people out there that want want to quit and feels like feel like they can't, feel like they don't have the resources, um, feel like they don't have the willpower. Like, there's there's all kinds of um, things. But but for example, another another harmful effort is like the extreme taxation of cigarettes in order to jack up like revenue for local governments and also increase the cost as a disincentive to smoke. So what are you doing in that case? All right. You are just increasing the cost of being an addict to addicts. Yeah. There are millions of people that are like, are not eating food or not getting nutritious food because they are addicted to cigarettes and like buying cigarettes instead. And I also hate the fact that they call it a sin tax. That's crazy. Like, yeah, that is not, the like, role screw of government. you that is Absolutely. not your role it is not your role to tell me what's a sin yeah like to tell me how i can and cannot sin like when i'm the only one it affects that's not your role so in summary don't smoke but also don't restrict people's right to smoke yeah and now time for our favorite segment Ass hat of the week. So, Michael, who is this week's proud recipient of our ass hat award? And pretty uniquely, we this week, the recipient is a previous government official, the former Kentucky governor, Matt Bevin. Yes. Now, I understand that this story is a few weeks old, but we didn't get a chance to cover it in our last two podcasts. And this guy's just too much of an ass hat to not talk about. Oh, it's so true. So what did governor, former governor Matt Bevan do? So as he was leaving office, he just went on a spree of pardoning people. He, he, he executed over 400 pardons, um, and for, for all kinds of people, but specifically, but these were mainly nonviolent offenders, right? Um, you know, you would, you would think, you would you would you would want them to be nonviolent offenders, people that were committed of you know uh, possession of marijuana and things like that. But um, no, so some of these people were the most heinous violent offenders. Wait, wait. I mean, but when you say heinous, I mean you're not talking about like uh, something too bad, like maybe some you know armed robbery or whatever. You're not talking like the worst stuff, like child rapists or uh, you know murderers, right? You know, exactly. He commuted. <laughs> he pardoned multiple like uh violent offenders and in a in a radio interview um the radio host um was calling him out for this and said quote there's a child rapist there's someone who beheaded a woman when talking about the people that whose sentences he commuted and bevan responded which one are you talking about oh god the radio host said a child rapist and bevan responded which one though <laughs> Because there were a couple of so people. so many child rapists, he couldn't even remember which one. But she was, yeah, like, absolutely. He pardoned uh, Micah Schoettel, who was uh, sentenced in 2018 to 23 years in prison um, for a number of disgusting crimes that I won't list. But he's a child rapist. And why did he do this? So it seems so weird. Why would this crazy governor, in the last moments of his legacy, just pardon a bunch of violent criminals? Well, the interesting thing about that, one of the, what I, what seems to be the most likely 
explanation is there were some people that he pardoned that had familial connections to people that had organized campaign events for Matt Bevan. And the others were probably just to cover those up. It's like, well, if I just pardon the people whose families helped my campaign, that would look really bad. So I should just blanketly pardon like 128 people. Mm -hmm. Like, and some of the reasons he gave were just so heinous. The, the child rapist that he pardoned that Michael talked about, um, he said that there was no evidence because the hymen was intact. That is not how female reproductive organs work. This whole thing about how if your hymen is intact, that that means that you're a virgin. That's not actually how hymens work. Yeah. There are plenty of people who have never had sex, who hy whose hymens are not intact for various other reasons. And there's plenty of people who have had lots and lots of sex whose hymens are intact. That is not actual evidence. Totally erroneous, like non-evidentiary, like piece of argument as your sole evidence for pardoning, pardoning this guy. Like you're, you're literally just person. setting people free. You're a terrible person. And in fact, I would even go further than that. I would say that you're an asshat. Oh, and, and with that... We would like to say congratulations. Yeah. Our worst yet. I'd say by far our, by our far worst our yet. worst yet. Because like there was the priest that we there was that priest guy that we talked about, but at least that was just words. Like yeah. these were actions. Yeah. I don't think that this guy's ever gonna get beaten, but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, we'll put him <laughs> we'll set him up there as ass hat of twenty twenty. He's the bar. He's the bar. <laughs> congratulations to Matt Bevan, former Kentucky governor. Good riddance as our Asshat of the week. All right, let's talk about some primary news. Mm. Uh, some of the kind of highlights that I will bring up. Um, recently, Elizabeth Warren was endorsed by Julian Castro, oh, that's good which, uh, yeah, I respect him for that. Um, I, I always did have some concerns about Julian Castro in the race, specifically because he did come from the Obama administration, and I was concerned that um, he might still have that uh, incremental, um, centrist bias uh, approach that the Obama administration had, but he's really kind of taken Obama's legacy and actually built off of it rather than argued for uh, a return to it. Uh, and I respect that. And the fact that he's now endorsing Elizabeth Warren, I think, does demonstrate that. So uh, so good for you, Julian Castro. I mean, obviously, I'd prefer you endorse someone else, but I like <laughs> Elizabeth Warren, so that's okay. The main thing that I want to talk about is a candidate that Michael and I have repeatedly praised on this podcast, and that's Andrew Yang. Now, we here at The Perspectrum strive as much as we possibly can to be intellectually honest. And we do have biases, and sometimes those, uh, and those often do show, and mm -hmm. sometimes biases can cloud your judgment, and I'm not going to deny that. Sometimes it is possible that my judgment has been clouded based on biases. And we rely on you guys and your feedback, which we actively take, to call us out when that happens. We've received feedback from multiple people saying like, hey guys, you know, you actually should probably take a look at this other perspective. Yeah. Um, and, and we, we, we rely that. on each other as well in trying to keep each other, you know, yeah. honest and committed to what's reasonable. So when a candidate that Michael and I like 
does or says something that is incredibly problematic, we would be intellectually dishonest to not discuss it. Mm -hmm. So it gives me no pleasure to talk about some really problematic crap that Andrew Yang has been saying and proposing. So let's talk about Andrew Yang's healthcare plan. So for a really long time on Andrew Yang's website, it, he has called for Medicare for all. And he's done that in debates. He's been like part of his platform that those words are plastered on his website to this day. Yeah. And that's interesting because he recently released a plan which is really not Medicare for all. It's not even a public option. And he justifies still like saying that he advocates for Medicare for all by saying, quote, I support the spirit of Medicare for all, which say you were driving past a restaurant and they said, you know, buy one, get one free hamburgers and you roll up and you buy a hamburger and they charge you for two. And you're like, hey, what the heck? You said buy one, get one free hamburgers. And they said, well, we support the spirit of buy one, get one free hamburgers, but we really just don't think it's feasible right now. And so we're going to charge you for both hamburgers. Yeah. That would be false advertising. And actually, they'd be prosecutable. Yeah. Spirits don't pay for medical bills. I mean, that's it's such a cop-out because one of the reasons why... Andrew Yang does have so much grassroots support is because he is this outsider candidate that has proposed some massive sweeping changes. And one of them for a while was specifically Medicare for all. He'd use the language of Medicare for all, Mm -hmm. but that's, that's not his policy. That's not what he's actually proposing. And the thing that really annoys me is there is this interview that he gave. I, I think it was on NBC I could be wrong about that, Um, where he was asked about, he was called out for this and he was asked about it. And what Andrew Yang said was, well, you see, Medicare for all is not a bill. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah. (laughs) So, so let's, in all fairness, let's go through some of what he talked about. Yeah. So he said that in reality, We have millions of Americans on private insurance right now, and taking those plans away from them very quickly would be untenable for many, many Americans. Which is a talking point that Michael and I have discussed on this podcast. Yeah. um, And how that is incredibly weaselly language. It is incredibly intellectually dishonest. Because again, you're making it sound like the policy is we're going to take away your private insurance and replace it with God knows what, when in reality... The bills that have been proposed, the various uh, versions of Medicare for All that have been proposed uh, by Bernie Sanders, by Pramila Jayapal, even by Elizabeth Warren, they have a provision that specifically says private insurance are not allowed to uh, give coverage to to things that are already covered by the single payer. And the reason for that is to make sure that... Uh, you have a more stable program Mm -hmm. because otherwise you start to have a system in which all of the sickest and poorest people are in the government program, which ends up being the weaker one. And all of the richest and healthiest people are in the private plan. And you end up 
with a lower overall quality of care. Mm -hmm. And you also give credence to the argument that public is worse, private is better. Yeah. And when that's not necessarily the case. You can look at various other countries that have tried this, and the more involved the private sector is in the health insurance, the less uh, positive results that the program yields. And the only thing, it appears like one of the only things that is actually Medicare-related that Yang has talked about is the slow expansion of Medicare and the lowering of the age of qualification to expand it to more people. But again, to Nathan's point, what you're expanding is the most, you're expanding to the most costly, most difficult to treat groups of people. And when you, when you talk about insurance, you're inherently talking about risk. And one of the reasons why high risk pools, which is like a cockamamie scheme that, that people have come up with to try to, to counterbalance, um, you know, to, to, to lower the cost of, of, uh, insurance plans funded by states and Medicare plans that are support, help that are supported by states is that um, one of the huge problems with that is that you're concentrating all of your highest risk people, all of your highest cost people in one group. And he said specifically that what, what he wants to do is have public insurance compete with private insurance and then by being a better insurance overcome in the long run. But it's very easy to see where that can fall apart. First off, think about how corrupt our system is. Think about how much crony capitalism happens. Now, if you have a bunch of Democrats uh, elected, you could feasibly say that maybe they will work as hard as they can to make the public option as good as possible. Mm -hmm. Maybe. That's possible. But as soon as Republicans take control, they're going to do everything they can Yeah to weaken the public option so that people have to go to the private option because they're being paid yeah. by those same people that run those private insurance companies. So it creates a huge opportunity for corruption. It is not as strong of a program. It is not as good of a policy. And the fact that he is using this language, the, the same language that Michael and I have talked about, um, on this podcast several times with the whole, oh, but you're just taking people's private insurance away. Oh, the 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 Blue Cross Blue, Blue Shield. I love my Blue Cross Blue Shield so much. I yeah. call them and I have personal relationships with them. No, people don't like their health insurance. They like their doctors. And you have more choice under a Medicare for All system than you do uh, under the current system or even a public option mm -hmm. because the private insurance plans, they don't cover everybody. But if you have everybody in the same net, if you have everybody covered by the same plan, then doctors, all doctors have to be involved in that plan. Otherwise, they're not going to be in business. Mm -hmm. So you have more choices. It's it's so irritating Yeah. for insurance companies, for corporate Democrats. And, and you know, I, I don't want to call... No, Andrew he, Yang, and he's like, Democrat. really not. He's not a corporate Democrat. But for him to use this language of corporate yeah. Democrats, of Republicans, and of insurance company propaganda to attack a policy that this country desperately, desperately needs. And I think this also goes into an important conversation that we need to have about the use by several different candidates of co-opting the language of Medicare for all for policies that are not Medicare for all. So let's talk about a few examples of that. Sure. So Pete Buttigieg 
his healthcare plan, he calls it Medicare for all who want it. Now, the argument is, well, it's okay to still use the uh, co-opted language of Medicare for all because um, if we create a very appealing public option for people to come in and, and uh, opt into, then eventually you will effectively have a system that is Medicare for all because everybody is going to get rid of their private insurance and go for that public option. So effectively, it's Medicare for all. But the issue is, the language of Medicare for All was first used by Bernie Sanders, and he was using it to describe a single-payer system. A public option is not a single-payer system. So what then like, defines the really important parts of a Medicare for All plan that isn't well, a single-payer okay. plan? Oh, so we've talked about that a little bit uh, on previous podcasts. Um, and this is, this is, again, why I specifically separate... Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan, Pramila Jayapal's Medicare for All plan, and Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for All plan. The important aspects are, number one, automatic uh, registration. So you don't have to opt in to the plan. You got it. You're, you know, you're, you're an American citizen. You're in the plan. All right. Um, number two. The provision that says that private insurance companies cannot cover anything that is covered by the single payer. And again, that's to make sure that you preserve it as a single payer, because once you get uh, multiple payers in that system, um, you start to dilute it. And either you have Republicans that try to make the public option as unappealing as possible to incentivize people to go into the private option, or you end up having all of the sick people in the public option, all the healthy people in the private option, and it all falls apart because the way that insurance has to work is actually for the sicker people to be subsidized by the healthier people and by the wealthier people. That's the definition of insurance. Yeah, that's how it works. Making a bet that you may need it someday, and the bet is not in your favor. So... Pete Buttigieg's plan does not do that. Another example, Medicare for America. That was a policy that um, that Beto O'Rourke, back when he was still in the race, that he endorsed. And again, it's it's basically another public option. Um, now, uh, one provision of it, which I don't know if Pete Buttigieg has this provision, but I know that Medicare for America does, Um is that if you currently do not have insurance, then you do get automatic registration, mm, which huge step. yeah, that, that, that's that's good. That that is that's 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 better than what we have. But again, it does not have the provision of if it is covered by the um, single payer, then it cannot be covered by private insurance, and that part is very key to the overall Medicare for all structure. So. What's annoying is that candidates realize that the language of Medicare for all is very appealing to a lot of people because Medicare is a very popular program. So what they're doing is they're trying to capitalize on that popularity, but endorse a plan that does not fulfill the spirit, to use Andrew Yang's words, of Medicare for all, which is making sure 
that everyone's covered, full stop, sick, help, full stop, and that we don't have to deal with this for-profit middleman that is the health insurance company. The major source of problems in the United States in our healthcare is the profit motivation. And plans that maintain that don't completely get rid of the core of the problem. Now, they might make it better. And I'm not saying that that's not worth fighting for. But we also need to keep our eyes on what the ultimate goal should be. And we should definitely not be making arguments for why that ultimate goal is unattainable, unfeasible, and undesirable. And when Democrats make that argument, it is extremely disappointing. And let's not let's be clear. Like we want we want good faith, like positive discourse focused on the best way to make the best healthcare plan possible. Like those arguments are make total sense. But the bad faith arguments talking about you know, using language like taking it away or you know, talking about how like it's an immediate transition, like the implication of what Yang was talking about and what many others have said is that, oh, how are we going to do this in the blink of an eye? Like, how are we going to switch? Like, totally, we're not under Bernie's plan. It's a four-year transition. Yeah, like all Medicare for all plans that make sense, that are thoughtfully put together, have a transition plan because if they didn't, they wouldn't be potentially feasible in any way. Yeah, you know, it's and it's funny because these. Other plans that are not as well put together tout the things that they do accomplish, which makes sense, right? Like, it makes sense that they would want to do that. Like, like Yang's plan specifically calls out trying to reduce prescription drug costs and investing in technology and which covering more stages. Yeah, covering more stages of life and covering more kinds of health care and diminishing the influence of lobbyists, all of which are super important things that both Bernie's and Warren's plans do. In addition to taking a lot more um, action on actually solving the problem of the tens of millions people of people without adequate health care. So it's interesting because Yang and Buttigieg and, and Biden and the public option people focus on like trying to solve like the underlying problems while still providing you with your, your you know normal plan. But to Nathan's point, like, the system is not just a car with, you know, a, a leaky radiator. Like the system is broken in a really important way that, and maybe I don't know enough about cars to know the radiators are really important, but like the system is broken in a really important way and, and patching the problem by trying to, you know, address one thing or another thing is just not going to cut it. It's just not going to get coverage to the millions of people that need it we do still like andrew yang to be clear yes um there are lots of things that he says that i love i love how he's talking about decriminalizing sex work i love how he's talking about uh decriminalizing drugs i love how he's talking about obviously his signature issue universal basic income mm -hmm. but there are some very important disagreements that i have with him and this is one of those things that 
he seems to be co-opting the language of corporate Democrats in the most and like he's, blatant way. In the most blatant blatant way. Not possible. even there's not even extra words after Medicare for all. It's and if you read the headline, you are lied to, and if you read the rest, yeah. then you know. And that's just that's something that I come to expect more from him, and it's disappointing. Yeah, it's disappointing. And on that sad note, we'll transition to our final part of the episode, our highlights. Yeah. Nathan, what were your highlights from last week? Yeah, my highlight was just having really fun New Year's Eve. Um, I already said last week that it was so nice to say goodbye to 2019 with a middle finger. Um, And actually today, I, uh, I, I encountered this random lady at the vet and... Um, we were just kind of there for some small talk like strangers often do. And she asked me, how was your New Year's? And I was like, oh, it was really good. I said goodbye to it with a middle finger. And she's like, oh, God, yes. Like, I've been watching the news, you know, I'm, and I'm so glad that ni- 2019's over, but we're not off to a great start. And I was just like, <laughs> I, that made me feel very validated. Mm. So I, 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 I'm not sure what this woman's name was, but I appreciate that she exists on this planet. And, and if you're listening, lady... You know, give us a shout out. Yeah. If you're one of the millions of people listening. <laughs> um, and so my highlight, uh, I, I have a bunch. Honestly, like last week was great. I had a great New Year's Eve, even though Bree and I were apart for New Year's Eve, but I got to spend it with some really great friends. Um, I talked about philosophy late into the night with this one guy that I read, met randomly. It was great. Um, and yeah, I had a really nice weekend with Bree. We did a lot of driving, but we spent it together. So can't beat it. Nice. All right. And that's our episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening to The Perspectrum, and we hope you have a wonderful week.